the character of the blessing that's ours this morning, the enjoyment, the great blessing truly that we each can feel to appreciate God's temporal blessings upon us, the character of life and the ability we have to come together like this is truly a fantastic way to begin our week, to in fact adore and honor the God who made us and who allowed us to in fact live upon this planet of His which is His footstool. As perhaps you have given some thought over this past week, we began a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning dealing with the matter of the end of time, asking some rather probing and penetrating questions relative to what shall occur then, the sequence of events, and isn't it still remarkable to consider the captivating way that various individuals can present those subjects and topics? We'll continue that line of thinking this morning. In fact, as you'll notice, the intense interest that so often is felt relative to these matters is truly easily seen in our society, isn't it? Speakers make it almost their regular prescription of program to speak about these matters. That seems they relatively go into other areas, for these are what people want to hear. So many, in fact, have bought those books that speak about the end of time, what's going to happen, how to prepare for it, the nature of those events and the intensity of them. As you and I began that series of lessons, we noticed quickly last Lord's Day morning that there are but two sources of authority with regard to these matters. The authority that is from heaven or the authority that in fact develops from men. We learned the necessity of relying on heavenly authority and it is to that authority we shall appeal throughout this series. And hence, we will open the sacred scriptures and let God speak to these matters. As we do so with regard to that authority this morning, might I ask you to notice the title again of the lesson as I have given it today, What Men Have Said and What God Has Said. That again makes a strong dividing line between the authority of men and the authority, in fact, of heaven. First, let's give some thought to the authority as men have stated it. When one speaks about the end of time, there are a number of words and phrases that occur so often that they are deserving of at least a few moments of our attention. Listen as I speak to these words and think about the ways you've heard them. Think about the intensity and those speakers who with such boldness and in such almost tear in their eye can speak of these matters as if they are going to be fact. You've probably heard about the second coming of Christ. And as they have discussed it in matters related to the rapture, the tribulation period, the number 666, the rise of the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon, the nature surrounding what shall befall the thousand-year reign on earth. Maybe you've had those come and knock on your door and want to talk to you about a thousand-year reign upon earth, and you listen to them speak about that of which they know not. As you give some further thought about the other terms I've listed, where does the mark of the beast enter into this? That's spoken of in Revelation 13, 18. As you couple all of those matters, and isn't it amazing how you can weave together an intriguing story that truly is eloquent and that is far-reaching, but the only question is, is it true? Is it true? Does God teach it the way they weave the story together? There's no question the terms themselves are taken from the Word of God. You can find the number 666. You can find the mark of the beast. You can find references to the second coming of Christ. You can even find Armageddon. The question is, is the way men weave that story together 
and present it as gospel truth, is it gospel truth? Our story for this morning and the weeks that follow will be to see, to open the Word of God and let God speak to us about those matters in particular. And as He does so with great intensity and interest, to allow ourselves to understand what shall befall. The last two I've placed on that list. Where do the Jews fit into all of this? What about the temple that once stood in Jerusalem and that now there's a Jewish mosque, or rather a mosque from the nation of Islam there? Is there going to come a time when in fact the Jewish people shall return to Palestine in force and as such will that temple be rebuilt? All those questions we will answer as this series proceeds. This morning, to somewhat hit the ground running, might we make some definitions as to that of which we speak? I thought it would be entirely fair to make note of millennialism as we begin, because in many ways it is millennialism that wraps all of that together in the story that you and I so often hear today. The word millennium, again in Latin, just means 1,000. So as one refers to something that involves a thousand, the Latins would have used the word millennium or some adjective to express it. As the word is used here, it has to do with a reign of Christ. And thus that brings us to three potential considerations that at one time or another have found their way into human consideration. There is that which is known as premillennialism. The prefix pre simply means before. And thus it merely asserts that Christ will return before the period of a thousand year reign. However, there's post-millennialism, and the prefix post means after, and thus you likely can quickly guess that this is a particular doctrine that teaches that Christ will return after the period of a one thousand year reign. Thirdly, there is that doctrine known as amillennialism. And the prefix a, usually when it's employed in ways like that, simply means not. And thus those who are of that persuasion think the Bible doesn't teach anything about a thousand year reign. Might we notice at this point that with regard to post-millennialism, it has lost great favor. Many as they look around them and see the state of the world in which we live, the rampant crime, the character of economies, and many other things like that over the last several centuries, post-millennialism is not highly regarded at all anymore. Furthermore, in terms of that which can captivate and lead to the interest of many people, amillennialism is not very interesting. That leaves premillennialism. And let us say, beginning in the late, latter part of the 18th century, it has caught fire amongst the human family. It is safe to say that the vast majority of denominations have grabbed onto it hook, line, and sinker. And they have taught it with such vigorousness, with such force, that likely three-quarters or more of the denominational families, all varieties, accept it. No wonder we hear so much about it. And yet the question still remains, is it true? As you and I give some thought over what's about to happen over the next few weeks in our study, if you'd like to take notes, feel free to do that. And study those passages on your own in the, in the available opportunities of the, of the following week and give some appreciation to what God has taught relative to these matters. It would not at all be a, an overstatement to say that premillennialism in its current form 
has in fact had such great impact that national economies and national legalistic matters, national foreign policies have in part been shaped by it. And I include our United States of America in that number. There have been presidents who have had advisors who have been so strongly supportive of and believing in premillennialism that that person has encouraged one or more of our presidents to form national policy in a way respective of premillennialism. Again, the question, is it true? We shall look intently to see what the answer to that's going to be. Of the various ways that premillennialism can be presented, there is one particular strain of it that especially over the last 15 years or so has garnered great interest. It is known as dispensational premillennialism. And I thought it worthy to at least for a moment define and identify what is special about that. Here is a very brief overview of what dispensational premillennialism involves. You have already seen with me about millennialism and premillennialism as it relates to a coming of Christ before a thousand-year reign of His, supposedly. When that adjective dispensational is included, it has reference to this. When you and I open the text to the Scriptures and appreciate that in six days God fashioned the universe and all things in it, as recorded for us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we are then led to note this. Again, it's explicitly affirmed that that took place in six days of 24 hours each. When we, though, come to 2 Peter 3.8, it reads as follows. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And hence, there are those who make the association that since God fashioned this earth in six days and then rested, and each day in their mind represents a thousand years, that means that there will be this recognition of some six thousand years that this earth shall stand. And as that six thousand year period draws to its close, Christ is going to return, they say, and usher in the thousand year reign at that point. Now you'll notice by the chronology set forth in the Bible that the six thousand years you see is basically up. No wonder then as the calendar turned from 1999 over to 2000, do you remember the panicky nature of so many? They were just sure the world was about to end and the thousand year reign was about to start. There were those who thought collapse was imminent. There were those who considered that in fact Christ is now on the verge of returning. And let us not forget there were many a false prophet who agreed with them. In fact, there are still many who feel that due to the time frame of the Gregorian calendar, the calendar you and I use, that still the time is imminent because they believe in dispensational premillennialism. The 6,000 years is about up. Christ is due back any time now. And thus every time there's a catastrophe, an earthquake here, a hurricane there, a famine somewhere else, Every time there's warfare breaking out in the Middle East, there's always a prophet ready to say, the Bible said it's going to be like this. And the time is about here. However, notice they've been saying that for centuries. And every one of those folks have come and died. And all of those natural disasters are now long since a part of history. And there are still those who say the same thing with every regard to these upcoming events. The year 2012 
is soon going to be on practically everybody's mind. You and I had just as well get used to hearing it. In fact, well over 500 years ago, a gentleman named Nostradamus, a rather ancient individual by our standards, in his writings made predictions about the year 2012 and that the year of the world is going to end in that year. Movies are already ready to be made about it. Books are no doubt going to fill the bookshelves with respect to it. And you and I are going to hear a lot about it. Perhaps this series will ground us more thoroughly in what the scriptures have taught relative to not only that year, but relative in general to the end of time. As you give some thought to what I've also written on that screen, let's now in great detail over the remaining part of our lesson basically today highlight what men have said. This part of the lesson, I freely confess, in one sense is a difficult thing for me because it's not mine or any one of your interests either to highlight what men have said. That's not what the pulpit is to be used for and it's not certainly what a worship service is to surround. However, I thought it perhaps in order for us to just put all the cards, if you please, on the table and just listen to what men have said. And let us notice up front, I'm not saying that the Bible says this. Our elders here at Pippin are not saying the Bible says this. This is what men have said. Listen to what a great story it is to hear. But again, don't ever forget, is it true? The story goes somewhat like this. When you and I open the scriptures and look at so many Old Testament prophecies, those found in the books of Genesis through Malachi in the Old Testament, those who are of the premillennial persuasion will wholeheartedly affirm that the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament were not fulfilled with the coming of Christ the first time. In fact, those kingdom prophecies were entirely with respect to an earthly kingdom. And furthermore, you might notice the following statement. They claim that Jesus came to this earth the first time, being born, of course, of the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem of Judea. But they quickly affirm the purpose for which he came then was to fulfill those earthly kingdom prophecies. And thus he was going to reign on earth then. However, he met an unexpected rejection. The Jews did not accept his teaching and did not accept his doctrine. And as such, because of that rejection, he could not found the earthly kingdom then. And thus, as a substitute, or perhaps we should say as an afterthought, he actually began the church instead. Now notice what we've said so far. The earthly nature, the physical character of the kingdom prophecies. Jesus came to fulfill them when he came first. The Jews rejected him. As a result or as a consequence, he established the church instead. Furthermore, as you continue on down the list, that would thus mean that in the mind of these premillennialists, the Old Testament kingdom prophecies that, remember, are entirely literal in terms of an earthly reign, the Lord postponed them. If he didn't fulfill them the first time, he's going to come back and fulfill them some later time. They were postponed. In addition to that postponement, the Lord is thus supposed to return in some secretive event known as the rapture. And it is a fanciful thing to be sure. When you hear the descriptions of it, he's going to silently slip in, 
slip out with the faithful, no one's going to really understand fully or know exactly what's going to happen. It's just that certain people are going to disappear. They're not going to be here anymore. And those left behind are the so-called wicked ones. Those who weren't ready for His coming. Those who hadn't yet accepted Him. This secretive event, again known as the rapture, will then be followed by seven years of tribulation. And oh, how much we hear about the description of this tribulation. It is to be a rather amazing thing if we are to believe what we're told. This period of tribulation, in fact, is divided into two portions or two parts. Based on some things written in the book of Daniel, it is divided exactly into two, three and a half year periods. The first period of three and a half years, and we should note this, with all the so-called saints gone, those left behind on earth, we're told, will in fact be in great hardship. Wickedness will run rampant. Crime and difficulty will reign supreme. The matters of this earth will in fact be a devastating disaster. And it's only going to get worse with each passing year, so we're told. At any rate, during that first three and a half years, though, the Jews are going to in mass begin to gain power. During that time, they will proceed to return to Palestine. Upon that returning to Palestine, we notice that a number of interesting things are going to happen. They will, in fact, put back in place the Old Testament system of worship. They'll build their temple again. They'll begin to worship with animal sacrifices and other things, so we are told. Furthermore, we notice as that three and a half years roll by, we come to the second three and a half year period of that same seven year tribulation. During this one, times are supposed to get exceedingly bad. So much so that there is a literal figure that's going to arise, capturing the hearts and thoughts of people. He will be the Antichrist. And as people begin to follow him and in fact do that which he bids them to do, he is going to gain worldwide domination. This powerful figure is going to truly be a remarkable person apparently. For as individuals follow him, his evilness and his wickedness will be such that the hearts and lives of men will be challenged forever thereby. Finally, as the seven years begins to draw to its close, we're going to have God reigning the curtain upon it in finality because then Christ will come. According to the millennialist, that's going to be his third coming. He came once in the books of Matthew and Luke. According to them, the rapture will be his second coming and this will be his third as he comes on this occasion, he will then, in fact, engage in battle against the Antichrist and will defeat him at the Battle of Armageddon, which, by the way, is a small planar field northward in the area of Palestine. And when the greatness of that battle unfolds and all the dust is cleared, supposedly the Lord will be victorious. Antichrist, the devil, and all those who are his henchmen will be, have been defeated. At this point, with Christ's absolute victory, now the thousand-year reign begins. He will set up his kingdom, centered with the capital city at Jerusalem, and he will reign for a literal 1,000 years in prosperity and peace. The world, we are told, will know harmony and peace like it has never known before. In fact, as one gives some thought to what supposedly will happen, many prophecies found in Isaiah and Jeremiah are said to have then be, will find their fulfillment. We will have lions and lambs laying down together. Snakes of poisonous character will not be able to kill anymore. We can easily see how that sounds so good to many people. 
that thousand year reign then will terminate finally. And at that time, eternity, as the millennialists say, it will begin. Then we'll have the actual judgment, if you please, the handing over of the kingdom to God, and then heaven or hell will be the lot of one and all. That story that I've just set forth before you is a captivating one. And there are men who can pick out small sections of that and deliver series of sermons on the detailed nature of how it's to be. What's going to happen? How will those see it as they are supposedly to exist here? As I have unfolded those things to you, might I ask you to note one final time, and I have placed it in large type with an exclamation mark. This is what men have said. Let me already preface much of what's to follow in the weeks to come with these words. What I've just unfolded to you that sounds so interesting from the perspective of many is sheer human speculation. Men have taken isolated passages, pieced them together to make that story. There is not an element of it that's true in terms of its detail. Not one element of it. You and I will seek over the next few weeks to look at each of those pieces. We will look at passages of the Bible and we will look at those that are used to bolster that viewpoint and we'll see what does it teach. What does it set forth in such grandeur? Some passages that you and I might look to with interest even this morning. Our Savior stated in John, the book of John, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, He said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, and shall come forth they that have done good into the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil into the resurrection of damnation. In a sense, we can say absolutely Christ is going to return. And in many ways, that will be one of the highlights of one of the first lessons of our series as we continue. But you'll notice the Lord there stated that in the same hour, there is to be a rather well-appreciated resurrection of both the good as well as the those that are not good. Furthermore, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul gave a rather remarkable study on the nature of the resurrection. As he comes near the close of that chapter, beginning in verse number 51, he has this to say, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We shall find frequent occasion to visit that passage, as well as one in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. I would ask you to read that one with me as well, beginning in verse 13 of that chapter. It is perhaps safe to say that this must be one of the top two or three 
among those passages to which we must refer, as well as to those which have been taken mistakenly by the premillennial teachers. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it reads, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a voice, or rather with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You and I have just read what the inspired Apostle Paul had to say about it. And notice, that's not what a mere mortal man has affirmed. That was what the inspired apostle stated. We will need to unpack that. Putting together passages included there, as well as those to be found in other passages of the Word of God. As we do so, perhaps some closing thoughts to our lesson this morning would entirely be in order. As you and I look not with interest to what man has said, but rather with interest to what God has said, there are a few thoughts that you and I should perhaps keep in mind. There can be many intricate details, according to men, in this saga that I've unfolded. And for that reason, you and I will proceed slowly. But as we do so, it will always be our desire to do so carefully. That is to say, in light of what the Bible has taught. It is the case that we can't turn to any one verse or even any one chapter and say this is the fullness of the matter. We'll need to put together passages found in a whole host of varying places and put them together in a way that is following the model of 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Our desire, as we rightly divide it, will be to let God speak for himself, to let the Bible be its own best commentary. And as we do that, we shall reach some rather amazing conclusions, which again leads me to say, all of that story that I stated earlier, and as interesting as it may sound, dear friend, there's not a single element of it. Not a single element in its detail is true. We will need to find out what the truth is. And our motivation is, again, because it's the authority of heaven. It is not of men. And that authority should lead us to have boldness and confidence and interest in that which is, in fact, the second coming of Christ. Near the bottom of that slide, a few more passages that might be in order for us. In the opening chapter of Mark, when Jesus first began his public ministry, it says he spoke about the kingdom of heaven and of God. This kingdom thus is a very vital matter. When we hear these state that the kingdom prophecies were postponed, my friend, that has consequences for the way we view the New Testament. If they're right, then when we read the Old Testament as well as the reading of the New, there are certain things we must consider and other things we must forget. Is it true the kingdom prophecies were postponed? Is it true Christ came to establish an earthly kingdom? Is it true that in fact that tribulation period is described in such a way there's to be the rise of a single person called an antichrist. 
over the years, there have been many things said about the Antichrist. During my lifetime and yours, a number of people have been said to be the Antichrist. Henry Kissinger was once said to be the Antichrist. Saddam Hussein was said to be the Antichrist. Muammar Gaddafi was said to be the Antichrist. That's just going to start the list. We need to know, does God and His Word teach stuff like that? Or rather, has He given us enough to know who might be, or even whether the Antichrist is what they even tell us it's supposed to be? There's a great deal thus of teaching that follows the mantra of 1 John 4 verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. For many false prophets are gone out into the world. It would not be an overstatement to say that you and I are surrounded by false prophets when it comes to this subject. Those who believe in this premillennial dogma, they believe in this heresy known as premillennialism, and as you and I continue the series, we're going to have a whole host of passages that let us know that it's not just our opinion that they're wrong. God has said it's not that way. And we need to appreciate that fact and be ready to help others see the error of their way as well, if that's what they think. With regard to premillennialism, in Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28, the closing two verses of that ninth chapter of the Hebrew letter, the inspired writer said, that as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ shall appear the second time without sin. Verse number 28. Thus we are again assured of an appearance. How will that appearance be? What should you and I view with respect to it? I would hope that we've each been encouraged to appreciate the interest of this study, not because men have stated it to be this way, but because of what God has said. If you have particular thoughts as the series goes onward, I'm hopeful that as we move through it, we'll, I'll answer all those questions, whatever they could be. But as we certainly get close to the end, if there are questions that you still have that we have not addressed, feel free to let me know of them. Perhaps we need to find a way to consider them as well. As we draw this lesson to its conclusion this morning, one final set of thoughts. As I've listed them in the following way, You'll notice that roughly one verse out of every 25 in the New Testament has reference to the Lord's second coming. On average, one verse out of every 25. That means this is an important subject. And it means that this is a subject you and I should understand. And a subject that we need to be prepared, in the words of 1 Peter 3.15, to give answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that's in us with meekness and with fear. So I hope that you'll come and be a part of all of these studies on Sunday morning as we continue to study about the end of time, what's going to happen, and as we put together what God has said to be a pretty fascinating thing. It won't be quite like that premillennial setup, but it will be truly a comforting and assuring matter. I suppose all of that leads us even now to ask the question, where do you and where do I stand before the august presence of the God of heaven? One of the things, though it's a bit ahead, of course, but one of the things that we shall come to find in this study is that we do not know when Christ is going to return. That part has not been vouchsafed to the human family in terms of knowledge. It hasn't been revealed to us. We know that He's coming, but we do not know when. It might be tomorrow. It might be a 100,000 years from now. We simply don't know.
What we do know is that it is ever the responsibility of human beings to be prepared for that coming, to be ready for it. And so this morning, how ready are you? How ready am I? Are we such that we can fully and wholeheartedly say, Come, Lord Jesus, Revelation 22, 21. If you and I are prepared and if we're ready, based on our obedience to the gospel's call of invitation and faithful living under His call, then sure enough, we can acclaim those words with fullness of heart. To be ready demands that we appreciate the Lord said this. Those who are accountable beings, who have reached the age of knowing wrong from right, are demanded that you must believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing He came to provide a way for you to be saved from sin, believing that He's the one and only way that can lead to heaven, John fourteen six. Upon that belief, with the realization of what sin has done, you then happily repent, change your mind toward those activities, not desiring to do them again, but desiring to fill your life with all the fullness and goodness of God, Philippians 1.11. Upon that repentance, a verbal confession of the following form, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8.37. If, in fact, you haven't reached that point in life, realize that the culminating act to it is baptism. Realizing that in that immersion in water, for instance, in the baptismal pool behind me, it is in that act you contact the precious blood of Jesus who died for you and that will cleanse your sins from you. Upon that activity, you're added to the church. You are then such that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. As you proceed through life, maybe you have, though, made such public mistakes and such matters that others know of your unfaithfulness and they know of your disgraced living, though you claim to be a Christian. If that's your description today, come back to your first love. It certainly takes a great deal of humility, but it's worth it. Because others want you to be right with God. God wants you to be right with Himself, and the Son wants you to be right. So if we could pray with you today, we'd be honored to do that. It would only take a few moments, and your life and your eternity might well be changed. If today either of those things would be the need of your heart and life, as you think about the end of time, rest upon what God has said about it, not what men have said. And if we could be in help to you to become a Christian or to revisit a faithful Christian life, let us know what way we could help while together we stand and while we sing.